Well, good morning, and again, welcome to uh, the service today. If you are new or visiting here or online, I'm, I'm Pastor Dan. I'm the pastor here at Calvary, and I just want to say welcome and thank you for choosing to worship with us today. You're, uh, you're catching up with us as we are just beginning to, to get to the, the end of our, our uh, series on, on Joseph, going through Joseph's life. Last week, we reached the climax of the story. Last week, we, we read about how Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, but also, and more importantly, how he revealed God's plan. He told his brothers how God had been at work in their story, theirs and his, from the beginning, and, and how it had all come together so that God might use him to save them and also to save the Egyptians and those in the surrounding areas. God used the hardship, the storms that Joseph went through and that his brothers went through to change them, to, to mold them, and to ultimately provide for them, and he does the same for us. As we rest in the comfort of that truth that the storms of life are not bigger than God's love for us, we move into our text this morning. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 47. We'll start with verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to skip a few, and then pick up with verses 27 to 31. At this point in the story, Pharaoh has sent a lavish parade to go and pick up Jacob and the rest of the family and to bring them out of Canaan and into Egypt. As we mentioned briefly last week, there were 70 in all in the family of Jacob, 70 people that would, over time, become the nation of Israel. But before they could become a nation, they had to figure out where they would live. And that's where we pick up in the story this morning. Let's read from Genesis 47, again, 1 to 12, and then skipping some to 27 to 31. If you have your Bibles with you, feel free to follow along. If not, the words will be on the screen behind me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. And the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them prosperity in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. Skipping to verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. 
Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Anyone ever have an awkward introduction before? You wanted to make a a great first impression, and then the introduction kind of went sideways on you, and it got just really awkward. This week, I read the story of Jennifer. She was working at a telephone company. She was doing well at her job and working her way up the corporate ladder, and then she was introduced by her future father-in-law as his son's fiance, the call girl. Just what she always wanted. Exactly how she'd always wanted to be introduced, right? Work at a telephone company and get the title call girl. Great. Fantastic. And while that introduction was unintentionally awkward, today in our text we see Joseph make a very intentionally awkward introduction. Joseph brings five of his brothers before Pharaoh. We don't know which of the five, but by the context of the situation, I would guess the five who looked the most bedraggled, the five who were the least impressive. They come before Pharaoh, and the king of Egypt asks them what they do for a living. What is your job? What do you do? He asks. We are shepherds, they reply, just as our fathers before us were. Now this may not seem like a huge deal to us. We're familiar with shepherds being a thing in the Bible, right? There there are lots of shepherds in the stories that we get told all the time. The, The shepherds at Christmas, right? King David was a shepherd. We see this all over the place. Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd for crying out loud. But just because being a shepherd is good in our understanding doesn't mean it was at that time and in that place. For if we flip backwards a page and read the final line of chapter 46, we'll see why this might be an issue. In verse 34 of chapter 46, we see that Joseph has has set this whole situation up. He has coached the brothers in how to respond to Pharaoh's inevitable question of what they do for a living. And he wants them to be clear that they are shepherds. For then we read, all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph is intentionally creating an awkward introduction, a bad first impression. This is the opposite of what we would want, right? We want people to like us. We want people to think that we're great, that that we're respectable. If we know that there is something about us that they probably won't like, we try to hide that as much as we can and for as long as we can. But Joseph, Joseph doesn't do that. He has the brothers openly admit that they are shepherds, openly admit and embrace the truth, even though that is something that would lower them in the eyes of the Egyptians in the eyes of this king whose favor they desperately need. Why? Why does Joseph do this to his brothers? Why does he embarrass them in this way? His intent is not to embarrass, but to help. 
He knows that the best land for shepherds is in the land of Goshen, on the outskirts of Egyptian society. He knows that this is the best place for his family. He doesn't want his family to get caught up in the Egyptian politics and the craziness of life here. He knows that because of his status, that is where they would be placed. He knows that Pharaoh and the others in Egyptian high society will want to include his family completely in their world. But he knows his family doesn't belong in the society, and he knows his family doesn't belong forever in Egypt. He knows the promises that God made to Abraham, that one day they would have their own country, their own land, and he knows that it's not Egypt. He, he doesn't want his family putting down roots in the center of Egyptian society, in a place that they don't forever belong. He doesn't want them putting down roots in the land of his suffering. And so, as he is laying out the plan to his brothers, coaching them on how to respond to Pharaoh's inevitable question, he lets them in on the secret that he's hoping they will be given the lands of Goshen to settle in. He was probably a little nervous when, as we see in our text this morning, the brothers brazenly request to settle there. But Pharaoh didn't mind. He gave them the land of Goshen to settle in, even going so far as to put some of the brothers in charge of his own livestock, his own cattle. All of this, all of this out of an awkward introduction. I continue to marvel at God's sense of humor. Over and over again throughout the Bible, we see how God uses paradox and, and even satire in the stories of his people. Jonah, the reluctant prophet who goes and prophesies against the great and evil city of Nineveh. And when they turn and repent, all 120,000 of them, instead of rejoicing, he laments. A prophet of the Old Testament finally had someone actually listen to him, and he gets mad about it. 120,000 converts, bragging rights in heaven, still mad. God sent Moses, the tongue-tied stutterer, to be the one that spoke on his behalf to Pharaoh, demanding that Pharaoh let God's people be freed from their time in slavery. God used Gideon, the coward, to lead an insanely brave attack on a much larger force. God is constantly using the unqualified and the weak. He's constantly doing exactly what we would not expect. And he does it again here. For Joseph's brothers, the foreign detestables receive the best, the choicest piece of land. And just as we see it in this story, we see it in our own lives as well, don't we? For we have had our own awkward introduction with God. I remember going to an Acquire the Fire event with the youth group I was leading in Olympia, Washington. It was at the Tacoma Dome about... Tacoma Dome, there we go, about half an hour north of us. Man, back in the day, like, Acquire the Fire was the place to go. It's where you brought your youth group. We're talking 20 years ago. It's been a while. But, but I remember we filed into this, this huge stadium, and we took our places and, and listened to this lineup of speakers that I had personally pretty high expectations for. And I remember one of them in particular, he got up and he gave some fiery talk. And then, as, he was, as was pretty common at, at those types of events, he got around to the part where he was about to do an altar call. The part where he would ask kids to come forward and, and make a commitment to Christ. But before he did that, he asked the crowd of thousands of teenagers if they would enter into a relationship with someone 
that was already in a relationship with somebody else. And you could feel the auditorium grow quiet and a little tense. Then the man took out his wallet and he told us about how God doesn't want to get into relationship with someone that has pictures of all these other guys and all these other gals in their wallets. He told us about how God wants us all to himself and how we needed to give up those heavy metal CDs. We need to give up smoking and drinking. We need to give up that bad relationship, that boyfriend or girlfriend that our parents didn't approve of. We need to give up watching R-rated movies because God didn't want to share us with our vices. He got one thing right in that whole rant. God does want us all to himself. He doesn't want us to be giving in to the sin that pushes us farther away from him. He and I have a different opinion of what a vice is. But I agree that God doesn't want me, doesn't want us to be embracing sin. Where we disagree is the idea that God will not have a relationship with us until we have exercised our own demons. The idea that God won't have a relationship with us until we have gotten our lives turned around, have gotten all of our ducks in a row is a lie. It's a lie straight from the mouth of the devil. For there is no one that can overcome all of their sin and enter into a perfect relationship with God. There is no one that can do that on their own. And that's what makes our introduction to God so awkward. Because we can't come before him wallets emptied of all of our past lovers. We stand before him with our wallets overflowing with pictures of the ones we've loved before and the ones that we can't seem to get over. And this is God, he knows. He knows our struggles better than we do. He knows our weaknesses better than we do. And he loves us more than we ever could. And so instead of banishing us from his presence, instead of kicking us out of his church and onto the curb, instead of dumping us, as it were, he took a completely different route. Instead of sending us away, he sent us Jesus. He sent us his son. He sent us the one who would live a perfect life, the one who would teach us more about himself, the one who would love us deeper than we thought possible, deeper than we can understand. And that love for us would one day bring him up a hill with a cross on his shoulders and in excruciating pain he would be nailed to that cross. And as he hung there, Jesus' wallet would be filled with pictures from all of our wallets. All the pictures we've been hiding, all the photos that we've been flaunting, all the scenes of our failings would be emptied into the wallet of Jesus Christ. Our purses and bifolds were emptied, for he took all the sin that ever was and ever would be upon himself, becoming sin for us on the cross. And there on the cross he died for it. The penalty for all of our cheating and all of our struggling was paid for by Christ. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in so doing, he defeated sin and death. And the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are given faith. And that through faith, our old dirty wallets have been taken away, and we have been given a new one. The rags of our sins have been taken away, and we have been given the pure robes of righteousness. The Bible tells us that through faith, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. And so we can approach the throne of God and ask for forgiveness for all that we have done. And he has granted that forgiveness to us. And that is what we see in our text this morning. We're awkward shepherds. The things that we have done, the people that we are, should be detestable to God. And yet, despite the sinners we are, we ask for what we do not deserve. 
We ask for the lands of Goshen. We ask for mercy and grace. We ask for forgiveness. And how does God respond to us? How did Pharaoh respond to the brothers? As we look at our text this morning, did Pharaoh respond to the brothers? No. He responded to their question by speaking to Joseph. It wasn't on account of the brothers that they were given the lands of Goshen. They were given the best plot of land in the whole empire because of Joseph. Because of what Joseph had done and because of what Joseph meant to Pharaoh. And so it is for us. We are not given forgiveness because of what we have done. We are given grace and mercy and forgiveness. We are given the best gifts we could ever imagine. Reconciliation with the creator of the universe and life after death, forever worshiping him in utopia. We are given all of this because of what Jesus has done and because of what Jesus means to God. And because of all that favor, because of all of that favor has been given to us through faith in Christ. This is a concept that we are continually having to wrap our minds around. I am continually needing to be reminded of my need for forgiveness and God's readiness to forgive. Because sometimes we respond like Joseph, right? We raise our eyebrows at the boldness of of the sinners around us asking forgiveness for uh, some of the things that they've done. You know, how, how could God forgive that, we wonder? Being a little bold and brazen, are we? And yet we are still given the land of Goshen, the land of grace. Forgiveness is still extended to us. Because of Christ, we can approach the throne of God boldly. And because of Christ, we are given the forgiveness that we need. And and here's the deal, church. What started out as an awkward introduction can sometimes feel like an awkward reunion, an awkward relationship, right? Right? Because we all know that we don't approach the throne of God asking forgiveness one time in our lives and then just not sin anymore. We all know that though God empties that wallet, we do a great job of attempting to fill it right back up again, don't we? And how fun is that? When we come back knowing better, knowing what we should have done and yet what we did, how fun is it to ask forgiveness for something more than once, more than twice? but over and over and over again. This past week, I had an awkward reintroduction with my wife. I knew that I was doing some things and had been doing them for a while that were not right by her. They were not respectful of her. I wasn't treating her as I knew that I should. I wasn't using words that were loving. My actions were selfish, not generous. I wasn't being the husband that I had vowed to be when I made my promises and we exchanged rings. And so I confessed to my wife my failings. I admitted to her my flaws, and I mean, she knew most of it. She was experiencing a lot of it. She has to live with me. But even though I knew that she was familiar with my struggles, that didn't stop me from feeling shame and from feeling guilt and from feeling remorse. I want to love my wife well. And it's embarrassing to me when I don't. And it's easier, to, it's easier to just know that she's forgiving me as I hurt her than it is for me to make the walk of shame and approach her and confess my failings and ask for forgiveness. It's hard to admit that we've done wrong. 
especially when we know better, especially when we've already needed forgiveness for the same weaknesses. We've needed forgiveness for them time and time again. How awkward is that? How awkward to continue to fail when we knew better. And yet, in the same way that I am frustrated with myself for continuing to fail, I am continually amazed by grace and forgiveness. For my wife responded to me in the same way that God responds to each of us. She approached me in my shame and she wrapped her arms around me and brought this weak, detestable shepherd to the land of Goshen by pouring her grace out over me and forgiving me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But despite those realities, it was given to me anyway, and that is how our Heavenly Father treats us as well. You will continue to need to come before the throne of God asking for the land of Goshen, asking for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And church, he will never stop giving it to you, to us. This is the God we serve. This is the God who loves us, the God of paradox and satire, the God who brings the lowly to prosperity. Prosperity. Christian culture has twisted the word prosperity. The Bible tells us that Joseph's family prospered in Egypt. But we know that the people of Israel, the people that God saved from famine and death by bringing them into Egypt, were also put in chains and enslaved there. But prosper they did, for in Egypt they went from 70 people to a nation. Prospering does not always mean living your best life now or receiving health and wealth and power as the prosperity gospel would have us believe. Prospering is resting in God's shaping and molding and knowing that sometimes suffering will accompany prospering while finding strength in the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us or abandon us and that his purpose for us is what we prosper. That's where we prosper as we rest in him. I don't know where you are at with your walk with the Lord. I don't know if you are struggling with your first awkward introduction or if you are struggling with your continually awkward reintroductions. Wherever you are, know this. God loves you. There is nothing that you can do that will stop him from loving you. And as you trust in him, resting in him, you will prosper. Your faith will grow. You Love yourself, your neighbor, and most of all, God. All of that love will grow. For as we rest in God, he is at work in us, shaping us, making us more like him. And that is a prosperity that nothing can take away. What a fantastic, wonderful, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.